Thanks for listening to the Faith Assembly of God podcast. Please join us at 9 and 11 a.m. at the main campus and 11 a.m. at the Monk's Corner, Remount, and North Charleston campuses. Thank you for listening. We hope that God blesses you through doing so. We're going to talk this morning about resolving marriage conflicts. How do you do that? How do you say, I'm sorry? How do you move on when those problems occur? So take your Bibles out and turn to Song of Songs chapter 5. And we'll begin with verse number 1 this morning. Great to see you. Good to have you back today. I hope you're excited, came hungry and ready for what God has for us today. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Learning how to say you're sorry. I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh and my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and with my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand in the latch of the door and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, but my hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart went out to him. When he spoke, I sought him, but I could not find him. I called to him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the wall took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. Wow. What a song. Father, we love you so much. I thank you, God, for your sweet presence here today and just pray that your word will find fertile ground. We love you, Lord, and we give you praise and glory for your word in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Turn to someone, tell them they look great today, and then you may be seated. A couple of weeks ago, Craig took you on a a little journey of what that honeymoon must have been like. I understand it was white hot in here and uh, temperatures were rising as he began to describe what that whole process is all about. Well, how many know the honeymoons don't last forever? And by the time you get to chapter five, I want to tell you the honeymoon is over. It's done. It's over. The, the word honeymoon is a unique word. It actually comes from two words. Moon uh, in, uh, signifying a month period of time from one moon to the next moon. Uh, honey. It's very sweet. And so the honeymoon period is that very early months, the sweetness, the the joy, the excitement. Uh, You've heard about going on a new job and and being in the honeymoon period when you first start that brand new job or you enter into a new relationship and you go through that, that honeymoon period. It's that fleeing time when everything's great. Everything's ideal. There's no problems, uh, no worries. Everything's new. Everything's fresh. We love the honeymoon. Sometimes they last just a short period of time, and sometimes it goes on a little bit longer. The best advice that I can give you this morning is enjoy it while it lasts. (laughs) 
Because it's going to come to an end. The newness is going to wear off. The problems are going to begin to surface. Reality begins to set in. Conflicts will arise. There are differences that you never knew existed. And all of a sudden, the honeymoon period wears off and it's back to reality. And what you have is between verse 1 and verse 2. Look at it. Verse 1, they are in the afterglow of their honeymoon. There's still that excitement. There's still that joy. But by the time you get to verse number 2, Solomon's wife had already locked the bedroom doors. Something happened between verse 1 and verse number 2. Now, every couple at some point or another is going to experience problems or difficulties in their marriage. And sometimes these problems have a way of finding their way into the bedroom. Now, if the marriage is going to be all that God intended it to be, if the intimate life is not meaningful, if it's not exciting, if it's not satisfying, if it's not enjoyable, it means there's problems somewhere else in the marriage relationship that are now showing up or cropping up in the bedroom. And we're going to talk about conflicts this morning. How, how do we resolve conflicts? How do you solve those marriage conflicts? And, and uh, some of you, most of you are married. If you're not, you're going to be married one day. And so this is good advice probably for every single one of us. How do we solve these conflicts when they arise in the marriage? First of all, I want you to notice the root cause of conflict. If you're going to understand conflict, you're going to need to know where it begins from, where it originates. Let me make, tell you one word. The root cause of conflict is selfishness. Everybody say that with me. Selfishness. It's probably at the core problem of any conflicts that arise, that one word, selfishness. And in the story, you see it both on the part of Solomon and you see it on the part of the Shulamite lady or Solomon's wife now at this time. And so let's take a look at it. First of all, look at Solomon's selfishness. The wife has been in her bed. She's kind of in that semi-state of uh, sleep and dreaming and maybe just now drifting off. She's not fully asleep. She's kind of, uh, you know what it is when you're those first half hour of sleep. You're kind of in and out and she's tossing and turning, uh, possibly out of anxiety, possibly out of disappointment. Uh, but she has been waiting. She's waiting for Solomon to come home. And Solomon is late again. Again, now, now, now there she is. She's been waiting in the bedroom. By the way, they had separate bedrooms in ancient days. And so she has her room locked. The doors are locked. And she has been waiting. And, and, and as you study the text, possibly she has been hoping for a romantic night. She had taken a bath. She was smelling good. She was looking good, and she's waiting in bed for Solomon to come home. Uh, but he's out again, and he's late. One more night. The Bible says in verse number two, he describes himself, my head is drenched with dew, uh, my hair is with the dampness of the night. So we know it's very late at night. He's come home late at night and, and the dew is all over his head. That's how uh, late it is in the nighttime when he finally gets home. And Solomon's the king. He rules over Israel. He's worked hard all day long. And what happens is for him, the days begin to turn into the nights. Time has always been, I believe, the most precious commodity we have right here on this earth. 
time, more than money, more than wealth, more than anything else, the one thing that is most precious to every single one of us is time. And, and on this night, work won over his wife. Work was more valuable. His, his time at work was, was more important than his wife who had been waiting for him all night long. And so once again, he comes in late at night. And the Shulamite lady, she's angry and she's hurt and she's upset because her basic needs are going unmet. Now, let me just, uh, as I go through this, I want to give you some instruction on marriage. And I think it will be helpful for every one of us. Uh, Bob Turnbull in his book, What Your Wife Really Needs, lists four things. And jot these down. There are four things that every single woman needs. Men get this. Number one, what do they need above everything else? Your time. A wife, your wife needs your time more than anything else you can give her. That is the currency of relationships. That's what makes relationships grow and spark and move forward. Uh, Clearing space in your calendar for your wife. Uh, You giving her time says you are the most important thing in my life. Number one, time. Number two, she needs talk. Sorry, guys. It's part of it. This is how she connects with you. Women love to talk, and this is that connection point, that that talking point. It's the way she handles stress, and so she is looking for conversation. She's looking for talk. She's looking for listening and being a part of her life. Number three, she needs tenderness. Write that word down, tenderness. She needs to know that she is cherished. She needs to know that you value her above everything else in your life. And so not a gruff, rugged man who ignores her and, and, and speaks hard to her, but she needs tenderness. She needs to know that she is cherished and cared for. And number four, she needs touch. They all begin with the letter T. You ought to be remember these. Time, talk, tenderness, and touch. And when I talk about touch... I'm not talking about touch just because you want something. I'm not talking about touch as a precursor to something that's going to happen later down the road. I'm talking about non-sexual affection. Because if the only time you touch her is you want something from her, eventually your wife begins to feel used. Don't look around to see who said that. <laughs> might embarrass somebody. <laughs> no. and, and Solomon, he has failed, at least we know in one of these areas and maybe some of these other areas in their marriage relationship, at least the time thing had gone away by now. But, but as you look at the Shulamite, her response is also selfish. So you see some selfishness on Solomon's part, but you also see it on the wife's part because uh, she totally shuts Solomon down. She locks the door. Not tonight, honey. I got a headache. Come back tomorrow. I'm too tired. And so she fails to meet his needs. Uh, Notice the dig in verse number three. She says, I have taken off my robe. In other words, I'm lying here naked and you can't have it. Right? And she just kind of digs. You're late, baby. You're late. The door's locked. You had your chance. You blew it. I'm lying here naked. And I'm in bed. And I'm looking good. But not for you. 
You see her selfishness, and she goes on to say, and she implies in the verse, as you look at the scripture, my comfort is more important than your needs. And so you see selfishness on the part of the wife. I waited, but it's too late. And she goes on to say, I've washed my feet. Now, now the oriental custom in that day was to wash your feet before you went to bed. And they were always washing their feet when you entered the house, when they went to bed, different times during the day. And, uh, and often, especially in a king's palace, you'd probably have a servant that would bend down and wash the feet. That's why John 13 is so powerful when Jesus takes his outer garment off and wraps his waist and begins to, to wash the feet of the disciples. But the servant had already been let go for the night and she's not about to wash her own feet. Wash my feet. It's too late. It's, it's not convenient. It's, it's not the time. I'm tired. I'm ready for bed. And so you see this whole self-centered thing now in Solomon's wife. She had little regard for his needs and desires. She didn't care how hard he had worked all day long or how much he may have needed her that night. She put her needs above his needs. And so you begin to get the sense and the idea that this root cause of these conflicts, of these problems, is the same root cause every single one of us have when we have our issues, and that is selfishness. Selfishness. Now, now let me throw this caveat in for some of you women that are really squirming right now. Uh, husbands need to understand and recognize that every refusal of your wife is not intended to be a dig against you or is not an anger. Sometimes they have been watching the kids all day long and they have been doing the dishes, they have been cleaning the house and they are simply slap wore out. And if your wife works outside of the home as well, she works during the day, she comes home, she cleans all night, puts the kids down to bed, does all those kind of things. Listen, sometimes fatigue can be a real problem in the bedroom. It's not always an attack against you. But in the case of the Shulamite, as you begin to read the text, you begin to see the underlying problem of anger seems to be the issue that's underneath. There's something underneath the service there. It's more than just fatigue. You begin to see anger on her part. She had prepared, she had waited, and now minutes turn into hours, and now the night is late and resentment is growing inside of her. And she gave up and said, that's it, forget him, I'm going to bed. Okay, so you get the, the, the core conflict problem here is selfishness. Now, I, I want you to look next at the consequences of unresolved con conflict. If these conflicts are not dealt with in a proper way, there are conflicts that come along the way. Follow me very closely here. She arises, she runs to the door, she opens the door. The Bible says that when she reached her hand out and she grabbed the handle of the door, her, her hand comes out and it's dripping now with myrrh. And so she's got that all over her hand. Solomon, what he had done is he reached through the opening and left a little gift for her. He left some myrrh, very sweet-smelling myrrh that he had had in his hand, and he wiped it on the doorknob of, of the door, the internal latch of the door. Solomon had left his gift for her. And when she finally opens up the door, Solomon's gone. He's left already. He has now walked away. He's tired of waiting. Now, I want you to notice something here about Solomon. He did do some right things along this time. First of all, he didn't get angry. He didn't yell at her. He didn't uh, shout. He didn't say awful things in retaliation. He didn't say, listen, baby, you never are there for me. You're always locking the door. What's wrong? He didn't attack her. He didn't get on to her. He didn't force his way into the room. He didn't punish her or abuse her in any way. He simply silently walks away. 
Ladies, let me tell you something. Men want to be wanted. If we got to beg or force or conjole or put guilt on you to uh, get what we might want to meet our needs, that we don't want that. Don't want that at all. We got to know that we are wanted. As much as they feel their need for their wives, men do want to make love with an unwilling spouse. It's got to be more than a duty or an obligation. Or I guess it's Thursday night. (laughs) Marital conflict, if it is not resolved, if it's not handled in the proper way, has the potential to be very explosive and damaging to the heart of the marriage. It has the potential for suffering and sorrow. Let me give you three things very quickly. Number one, he may walk. He may walk. Yvonne Turnbull, who wrote this book, What Your Husband Really Wants, And that's kind of the companion book to the one I just quoted you earlier about what a lady really wants. Here's what your husband wants. Let me just jot them down quickly. Number one, a cheerleader. Your husband needs a guy who's uh, a lady who's going to boost up his confidence, give him approval and praise. And just uh, every man needs a good cheerleader behind him. Number two, uh, his champion, someone that will that will respect him and encourage him and be a champion for him. And number three, needs a companion. Every man needs a wife to be his very best friend and closest companion and vice versa. Number four, a a man needs a wife who will be his complement, someone who comes along beside him and completes him. The Bible, when it talks about two becoming one flesh, it carries the idea of completion. And so the wife completes the man. And all my weaknesses are, are filled in by my wife and, and vice versa. And so we need to complete each other, a compliment for each other. If the man does not receive that, what happens is at some point he may walk. Not the right necessarily response, but it may happen. Number two, he may not talk. If you go on down in verse number six, it says, I opened my door for my beloved. My beloved had turned away and was gone. He, he had walked. And my heart went out to him when he spoke. And I sought him, could not find him. I called to him, but he gave me no answer. Underline that phrase right there. I called to him, but he gave me no answer. In other words, often the man will not fight. He just simply withdraws to his own little world. He, 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 he quits talking. He, he shuts down. Often a wounded man will go into his shell and withdraw and he won't talk. Proverbs 21 kind of alludes to this in verse number nine. It says, it's better to dwell on the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Now, now for most men today, they're not climbing out on their roof. I haven't gone by driving down the road and seen men camped out on their roof. But their housetop may be their garage. It may be the golf course. It may be the lake. It it may be their study. It may be working overtime. Uh, But what happens is if there is a contentious woman around, uh, uh, often he will just simply withdraw, get quiet, withdraw to his own hobbies, and he leaves and he won't talk anymore. Unresolved conflict. And then then there's that personal abuse from the watchman. Look at verse number 7. This is a frightening verse. The watchman went about the city. They found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the wall, they took their veil 
from me. Now, she, she at this point, you get the sense in, in the drama. She runs out of the house. She goes out looking for her husband. In her hurry, she grabs a cloak. She grabs her coat. She puts it on top of her. She covers her face. She's out running through the streets in the middle of the night. The, 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 the watchman probably assumed that there is a prostitute hanging out because good ladies don't go out in the middle of the night. With a veil over their face kind of was another giveaway, another tip-off. And so the Bible just says the watchman of the palace uh, grab her and they uh, beat her. They hit her, they knock her around, and she is left uh, just, just beaten. Terrible scene. Uh, the woman felt the full sting and pain of what she had done. And now she's kind of reaping the consequences of locking the door. And, uh, and yet... Not from Solomon. Solomon never returns in this anger and rage. Uh, She receives the consequences from the watchmen. Now, let me talk about the watchmen. The watchmen are the faithful guardians of God's people. And in fact, the watchmen in Ezekiel, and you read the word of God, they're always presented in a positive light. This is the only time you see a watchman roughing somebody up. And so the watchmen are the faithful guardians of the people. I would say the watchman for every single person is their conscience. So what happens is when you're getting in a fight, when there's, when there's a conflict going on that's not being resolved, your conscience begins to eat you up. Now, if you're a child of God, your conscience is keenly uh, tuned in by the person of the Holy Spirit. The Bible said the Holy Spirit comes in and he lives inside of you and your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, so God is there. The Holy Spirit is there. He works in conjunction with your conscience and he begins his convicting work. Now, I want to tell you, I am so thankful for that watchman that is there. To work in my heart when I fail, when I blow it, when I sin, when I'm involved in unresolved conflict, the Holy Spirit's there, he's working in my heart, he's guarding me, and sometimes the Holy Spirit comes along and he beats me up. And I need it. Because I've been an idiot. Because I've blown it, because I've sinned, because I've failed. And the, 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 the watchman is there, the Spirit of God is there, and he's working in me, dealing with me, beating me up. The husband or wife continually nags about what the other person does wrong. That person can't hear from the Lord because you are talking so loud. Ladies, sometimes it's best just to shut up and let the Holy Spirit do his work. Men, sometimes it's best just to shut up and let the Holy Spirit do his work. It works both ways. Spouse, you cannot be the Holy Spirit for your husband or wife. Only God can do that work. And so sometimes just get quiet and get silent and let the Spirit of God come in and begin to work in your spouse's heart rather than nagging and preaching and telling them everything they've done wrong. If you give them enough time, the Holy Spirit can point all those things out. Good advice. This is good stuff. Stop nagging. Let the Holy Spirit work. His ways are higher and much more effective than our ways. And and the Shulamite distance makes your heart grow fonder. And uh, without interference of his griping or nagging or whining or complaining, 
she genuinely becomes repentant. And now the Bible says she goes after him. She is sorry for her actions. She's sorry she locked the door. And now she's trying to track him down, run him down. The watchman, the Holy Spirit had done their job. Now, conflicts, they're, they're ugly. And they're a mess. And they can create all kinds of problems. How do we resolve conflicts? Get this. This is the, this is the heart of what I want to share. Number one, communication. If you're going to resolve conflicts, there has got to be good communication in the marriage. Uh, look at verse number two. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is his voice of my beloved. He knocks saying, and this is what the Solomon says, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. I, and I, I don't think he was just trying to come on to her and say nice stuff so the door would be opened up and he could get what he wanted. I, I see this as a genuine response of a man who loves his wife. And what does he say? My sister, my love, uh, my... my uh, and, and probably he sent some tension. A locked door might tip that off. <laughs> my sister, that's an emphatic reference to their friendship and their intimacy and their permanency of their relationship. My darling, it is a phrase that is used nine times in the Song of Songs. It's, it's one in which he delights in her. I delight in you. I care about you. My dove describes her gentleness. Uh, my perfect one. Uh, he is saying, you are mine and no one else. And I love you more than anything else. And you are mine. And so he begins to use these words of praise. These words of compliments. Communication. Now, I, I want to tell you. It's not always the case with husbands. Sometimes husbands speak in code. And I found some code words that a husband will use, but it's not necessarily what they mean. See if you can follow along with this logic. Men will sometimes say, it's a guy thing. What he really means is there is no uh, rational thought pattern connected with what I'm doing right now. And you have no chance of all of making it logical. Here's another one. When they say, can I help with dinner? They are really saying, why isn't it already on the table? <laughs> when your man says, uh-huh, sure, honey, or yes, dear, it means absolutely nothing. These are just simply conditional responses. When your husband says it would take too long to explain, he really means I have no idea how it works. When your husband says, take a break, honey, you're working too hard, what he really means is, I can't hear the game over the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> when your husband says, that's interesting, dear, he really means, are you still talking? <laughs> when your husband says, we share the housework, what he really means is, I make the messes and she cleans them up. <laughs> when your husband says, oh, don't fuss, I just cut myself, it's no big deal. It really means I have severed a limb, but will bleed to death before I admit that I am hurt. <laughs> when your husband says, hey, I've got reasons for doing what I'm doing, it really means I sure hope I come up with something pretty soon. And when your husband says, I heard you, what he really means is I haven't the foggiest clue of what you just said. I'm desperately hoping I can fake it long enough so you won't be mad at me for the next three days. It's code talk. Men talk, and you, you've heard that at some time or another, I am sure. Good communication is a key to a good marriage. 
uh, talking about your differences, talking about your preferences, uh, open and talking through your problems and discussing them and working things out. Open communication is the key. Now, sometimes you may need to walk away and say nothing, as Solomon did in this case. When the situation is tense, rather than responding in anger, and sometimes you get angry and your blood pressure is rising, and if at that moment you open your mouth, you know you're going to say the wrong thing. And so at times it's best just to keep your mouth shut and maybe walk away until things simmer down rather than saying hurtful, destructive words that are hard to take back. Calm down. Let the Holy Spirit come in. Let the watchman come in and begin to do his work on you. Listen to what Ephesians 4 and 29 says. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Great verse. When a husband or wife becomes angry, make a list of all the things you love about her and begin to verbalize that. This is what, this is what Solomon does. Rather than getting angry, rather than yelling at her because the door's locked, he begins to think about how much he loves her. He begins to think about all her good qualities, her gentleness, all those things he loves about her, and he begins to verbalize that. Listen, that's good advice for any single one of us. When you are feeling your blood pressure rise and the anger's there and the, and the conflicts are rising up, think about what you love about that unique person God has brought in your life and begin to verbalize that. Good communication. Uh, the second thing is consideration. Consideration. Uh, communication, number one. Consideration, number two. Look at verses four and five. My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door. My heart yearned for him. I rose to open for my beloved, but my, my, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. Now, the way you overcome selfishness and indifference is by being considerate of the other person's feelings and desires. We talked about selfishness was the root of all that. How do you overcome selfishness? By being considerate. By putting the other person above yourself. By putting their desires above your desires. And if you'll respond, if you won't retaliate in anger, but you'll always respond in love and grace, it is the way to resolving these conflicts that come up in our marriage and our life. The myrrh he leaves on the door are a symbol of sweetness. And so he is saying, I still love you. You're still my baby. And you still mean the world to me. And so he leaves that tender calling card on the latch of the door. What, what a beautiful response that Solomon gives when the door is locked. Conflicts can be quickly resolved if you determine not to react as your spouse has treated you. Isn't what the Bible says? Don't uh, overcome evil with evil, but you overcome evil with good. You, you love in return. We love in response. We bless those who persecute us. Uh, and so, so when you respond in, in goodness and in love, it, it brings a quick resolution to that conflict. Um, determined not to hurt back. If your spouse hurts you, you've got to be above that and say, I will not hurt back in return. And if you have that kind of attitude, then the conflict can be quickly resolved. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. But always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Your response 
The way you respond is subject to your own will and your own emotions. You, you, they, they may mistreat you along the way. Your husband may mistreat you. Your, your husband may take you for granted. Uh, your wife may mistreat you in some way. Uh, but, but you determine how you respond. That's on you. And don't blame them. You are able to control your emotions. You don't need to be hateful or angry or cruel. You can choose to respond in love and patience and grace. And love and patience and grace are the ingredients that will overcome selfishness. Continue to pursue your relationship with love. Proverbs 17, 14. And there, I, I probably could have given you 10 Proverbs right now, but let me just give you one. Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. That's incredible. Uh, I heard one, one person say, or an expression, just let the river flow on by. Just let it flow by. Don't dive into that anger. Don't dive in. Don't, don't try to fight it. Don't go up against it. There are some things in life you just want to let roll right on by. Time it will pass. When she discovers the myrrh on the door and her hands are dripping with myrrh, she says in verse number six, My heart has now longed for him, my soul has gone out after him. And so now there's a big, there's a change coming. Her that consideration, that tenderness, that love begins to change the Shulamite lady. It, it and that's the transforming effects that love has on her heart. His tender response accomplishes more than demanding, more than pushing down the door, more than complaining, more than griping, more than yelling at her. Her simple response of consideration changes everything. Consideration. Number number three, compromise. Everybody say that with me. Compromise. Great word. Ah, Look at verse number eight. I charge you, O daughter of Jerusalem, you find me beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. Now, six times in verses two to eight, she calls the Shulamite calls Solomon her lover or her beloved, depending on what translation you have in the interpretation. She calls him my lover, my beloved. Now, notice something here. Even though she may have been angry, she never stopped loving him. Okay, you got that. Even though there was a conflict, even though she was angry, she never, ever stopped loving him. And his tender words begin to work her way down into her heart. Husbands and wives, if you're going to resolve conflicts, listen to me. You must yield to each other and begin to work out the differences and find that place of compromise. When conflict arises, both parties have got to recognize that something has gone wrong in the relationship. Now, you've got a choice to make at that point. You can dig your heels in and say, I'm not stopping. I'm not changing. It's all their fault. Or you can let the watchman begin to work in your heart and bring you to that point of compromise and forgiveness and reconciliation. Someone must experience a change of heart if there is eventually to be full reconciliation or resolution to the problem. 
Now, what's it say? It says, my heart's changed. My, something's happened. Before the door's locked, now she says, my heart has gone after him. Listen, there has got to be a change of heart on the part of one of the marriage partners in order to find repentance, in order to find resolution. But if you're digging your heels in and they're digging their heels in and no one's moving or no one's budging, that gulf will get wider and wider and wider. And so you've got to begin by forgiving and compromising and loving that change of heart will lead a person to go after the other spouse and to make amends and to resolve the conflict and so because she has a change of heart now i'm going after him i want to find a resolution to our problems when a husband or wife is wrong admit it listen say i'm sorry i blew it let's all say this together say i'm sorry Isn't that great? Isn't that freeing, liberating? Try it in your marriage. Try it out. Those two simple words. I'm sorry. Sorry. When the husband or wife asks for forgiveness then, and they have wronged you, give it freely. Let it go. Release it. Don't hold that offense against them and don't bring it up next week or next year or down the road. When it's been resolved and done and finished, put it behind you. I'm sorry means I'm sorry. And you say, okay, I forgive you. It's done and over. Don't keep bringing it back up. Don't hold that offense or ever bring it up again. Listen, if you want to resolve conflicts, it's going to take compromise. It's going to take consideration. It's going to take communication. I hope I've helped some of you guys who have been married today. Uh, I want you to turn to Revelation 3 and 20. I want to close with a thought. And some of you guys aren't married in here and say, boy, I wasted this morning. Uh, no, first of all, the word of God's good for all of us anytime, any place. But, but number two, there's some powerful application to another story in Revelation 3. I think really touches every single one of us in some way or another. Revelation 3 and verse 20. It's a very similar scene, and you'll find it. Let me read it to you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now you have the picture of the Savior. You have the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he doing? He's standing at the door, and he's knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, I want you to give the the backdrop to that very quickly. A lot of times we ministers, preachers will say at the end of a, a service, okay, God's knocking at your heart's door. Come now, get saved, get right with God. And there's some application there, and, and that's not a bad picture to paint. But he's not necessarily talking to non-believers here. He's writing to a church at Laodicea. He's writing to a church that had fallen out of fellowship through neglect, who had fallen out of fellowship through complacency and wealth and everything else they had. And you know what they had done? They had just gone to sleep and forgotten about God. He's like the Shulamite. And, and the Lord's knocking, and He's knocking. And He's saying, I want to come in, I want to have fellowship with you, I want to have relationship with you. Jump back to verse 14. Look at the condition of this church. He says, And to the angel of the church lay to see you right. These things say the amen, the faithful and true witness, uh, the beginning of creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become nothing, wealthy and in need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Ladies in the room, I've taken my gowns off. I'm naked. I have no clothes on right now. She thinks she's rich. She's in the king's palace. She has everything she would possibly ever need. But she had forgotten the reason she is rich in the first place is because Solomon reached out and found her in the vineyards on the countryside. And she's working in the sun. And she's slaving under the oppression of sin. And he snatches her out of that. Listen, the reason we are spiritually rich is because Christ Jesus saw us in our sin, saw us in our law. Saw us in our darkness, and he reached out and he grabbed us and took us out of that. Jesus desires fellowship with us, and he stands at the door of our lives and he says, I want relationship with my children. I want to know you more. I want to have communion with you. I, I want to come in. Open up your life to me. Like the Shulamite or like the Laodicean church, we do not let them in. Just as the Shulamite made her excuses and said, you know what, I've taken off my robes, I've already washed my feet. We make our excuses and we say, God, I'm sorry today, but I'm too busy. I'm sorry, God, tonight, but I'm too tired. I'm sorry, God, but I just got too much going on in my life to deal with you right now. And the Lord knocks and he knocks. He says, I want in, I want relationship, I want fellowship, but we're too busy. We're selfish. Just as Solomon walked quietly away, the Lord will leave us to our desires. He won't force himself in on anybody. He won't force you into a relationship with him. He walked quietly away. He will not demand or force entrance into our lives. And yet he'll silently, look at this picture. He'll silently thrust his hand in. His hand dripping with myrrh. And he'll put it on the handle of the latch of the door. He'll take that anointed hand, anointed with myrrh. Myrrh, listen to me. Myrrh is the one ingredient that is always a symbol of suffering and death. And so Jesus Christ takes that hand, that hand with nail prints in his hand, uh, and he puts it into the door of our life. And he leaves that fragrance of his suffering, of, of what he went through, of Calvary, of the cross, all because he wants relationship with you, all because he loves you. And he just simply says, open up the door, let me in. Let me in. Just as the Shulamite placed herself in danger when she left the king's palace, we place ourselves in danger when we're out of fellowship with God. When we're away from God, when we're not where we ought to be, when because our security as children of God is always found in submissive, obedient fellowship to the Lord. And when we're out of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, when our hearts are lukewarm and we break fellowship, then the Lord has to correct us. The Lord allows His chastening to come into our lives. The Lord allows his biblical discipline to come into his life. Nobody likes chastening. Nobody likes discipline. But God does it so he might bring us back to himself. He says in Hebrews, no chastening is pleasant. But in the end, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness and holiness. 
So God allows these times to come. And, and so you go down to Revelation 3 and 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And so God, in his love for us, allows us to suffer the consequences of our action or our neglect. But just as the Shulamite repented, just as the Shulamite went after him and pursued him. So the Bible says in Revelation 3.19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chase, and therefore be zealous and repent. And you can repent today. God's been longing for that intimacy with you. He's longing to get close to you. But so often we say, not now, God. Not now, God. I'm, I'm too tired. I'm not ready. I'm doing my own thing. I'm too busy with my life. But God says, be zealous. Repent. Let's run after him. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening. For more, check out faithishere.org.